It is Christmas, or at least the Christmas season, and it does sneak up on many of us. In fact, as it comes, it seems to accelerate, I think. Week turns into week. The holidays coming rapidly. The commitments that we have made begin to press in on us. You know, all those people that you said, we need to get together before the end of the year and have dinner. Yeah, we should do that. That window opportunity is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And pretty soon you find that you're booked up. Just the pressures, the commitments, work deadlines, school deadlines, church activities, financial pressures, Family responsibilities, it just seems to multiply. Throw a common cold in there for some, and it really is a wonder that we get through the month of December, isn't it? You know, for some, the pressures of December get to be so intense that they, they tend to put their spiritual life on autopilot. They're being pulled and stretched in different directions and something has to give. And so frequently what gives is their time with the Lord. I don't know if they consciously think it through this way or not, but it it seems as though the attitude is, well, God is patient and, and I'll be okay. And when it comes the first of the year, I'll get back on board and I'll spend time with the Lord on a regular basis, but right now life is too crazy, too busy. I'm too tired. I can't can't do that. My friends, these things should not be. Our time with the Lord, the, the pursuit of the health of our own soul, cannot take a back seat to the pressures of our culture, the responsibilities of our positions. It's just huge. It's so significant. We dare not neglect the one who has loved us so much he sent his own son to save us from our sin. There is no higher priority and there is no greater pleasure than loving Christ and being loved by him. And the way he does that for us is by spending time alone with him in his word time with Christ in the scriptures we will feel the presence of Christ he'll minister to our soul he'll bring comfort to our heart he'll strengthen us in our faith in the face of all kinds of adversity open your bibles up to Luke chapter 10 this morning Luke 10 if you're using a pew bible page 1035 Luke chapter 10 and verse 38 for this morning. Luke 10, beginning in verse 38 and through the end of the chapter. We have a very short little vignette, a short little account here in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke gives us this little narrative, this little vignette, in order to remind us about the need to keep the main thing the main thing. In fact, I've entitled this morning's message, The Main Thing. 
We need a little background coming into this short little section here. The events here in verses 38 through 42, they occur shortly after Jesus' trip to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. So it would be around early October that he would, the events of this chapter would take place. It's in the last six months of Jesus' public ministry, and during that final six months, he actually makes three trips to Jerusalem or its environs. A good bit of the narrative of those last six months and those three trips are actually recorded for us in John's Gospel, beginning in John chapter 7 and running all the way through chapter 11. But this particular event here in Luke 10, beginning in verse 38, occurs shortly after the events that John narrates over in John 7 and 8. Jesus is there to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But the city and its leadership are not ready for him. The hostility has grown to the place where it has now galvanized into open opposition. The Sanhedrin, that is the ruling authorities of Israel, 70 in number, are hostile to Christ. They would kill him, as a matter of fact, by this time, if they could only figure out a way to do it and avoid a mob scene. So things have grown very difficult for Christ, and thus he visits the city and leaves again and visits and leaves again. He kind of hovers around the area of Judea and over in the east, the Jordan River and Perea, just staying outside of their grasp. But here in the story recorded for us in Luke 10 and verse 38, Jesus has come back towards the city. It's interesting, if you go to the beginning of chapter 10, just to pick up some further context here. As I say, the hostility of the Sanhedrin has galvanized at this point. And chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. One commentator speculated, and I think it's an interesting speculation, that the Sanhedrin should have been the ones announcing the arrival of Messiah. They are the ones who should have been going around to all the villages and saying, the Son of God, Messiah, is here. Prepare your hearts to receive him. And yet they had no interest in him at all and would kill him if they could. And so it's almost as if Christ appointed a substitute Sanhedrin, 70 others, to go out two by two ahead of him and announce his presence. Furthermore, chapter 10 tells us, beginning in verse 25, that Christ is being challenged now on a regular basis. They are trying to trip him up. They're trying to catch him somehow in his words so that they can have a a quasi-legal basis to put him him away to, to be done with him. Verse 25, certain lawyers stood up and put him to the test. 
saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? He answered and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan. This lawyer, this teacher of the law, was attempting to evade the very clear teaching of the law. And so Jesus turns it back on him with that parable of the Good Samaritan. Because it illustrates what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And then in context, we arrive in verse 38, our text for this morning, 38 to 42, with a fairly interesting little story here about Jesus' first visit to the home of Martha and Mary. This little vignette, I I believe, that Luke has included for us here in the text at, at this place because it illustrates for us what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's an illustration of what God expects of us, what God desires of us, and what should be the desire of our heart if we truly love Him. So just as the parable of the Samaritan illustrates what it means to love your neighbor, this, and it's not a parable, it's an account of an actual happenstance, this account illustrates what it means to love God. So Luke includes it for us here. I've broken this down for you very simply. It's in your bulletins. I just chose three, three words to break down this little narrative for us so we could get our arms around it a little. The first word is contrast. Contrast. The second is complaint. And the third is correction. So we have a contrast, we have a complaint, and then we have a correction. And that's how the little text lays out for us. Begins here in verse 38 with the contrast. Now, as they were traveling along, Luke tells us, he entered a certain village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. So the picture is that Jesus and his disciples, notice that they, they were traveling, verse 38. You trace it back into the chapter here. It's his disciples. I believe it's verse 20. Yes, 23 speaks of his disciples. So Jesus is traveling with his disciples and he's traveling around the area of Jerusalem. Jesus is an itinerant preacher. That is, he has no place to lay his head. He, He has no accommodations. He's relying on the hospitality of the people to take care of his need. And so he comes into a certain village, Luke tells us here, verse 38, where there is a woman, and her name is Martha. This woman, Martha, has a sister whose name is Mary, and they evidently live together in this home. Now, we learn from John's Gospel, John chapter 11 and verse 1, that the village itself is the village of Bethany. The village of Bethany. It's located about two miles east of Jerusalem on the backside of the Mount of Olives. The village of Bethany, where the home of Martha and Mary is located. So that's where Jesus is. That's where this certain village is. And this woman named Martha. 
Now, Jesus needs a place to stay. It's the day is getting on. He needs a place to stay, a, a place to spend the night. He and his disciples, and they're hungry. And so as was wont and the custom of that day, the, these women opened their home to him, a place for him to stay the night, receive a meal to take care of their needs. And so Martha, it says, the end of verse 38, she welcomed him into her home. That is, they, she received him into her home as a guest. She brought him in to show him and his disciples, I'm presuming, hospitality. She welcomed him into, notice, her home. You see it at the end of the verse. It says her home. I take from that that of the two sisters, she's the older of the two. This is Martha's home. Martha, the older sister, Mary, the younger sister, and they welcome her, or him rather, into their home. Now, he's an invited guest. He's an invited guest into their home. And the two sisters, they, they want to hear more from him. His preaching has, has captivated their hearts. So they invite this itinerant preacher into their home. Living so close to Jerusalem, they're undoubtedly very familiar with him. They've heard him preach many, many times. But now they have the opportunity to invite him right into their home as their guest and to have a private audience with him. You can bring home Messiah and let him preach in your home. It's a, quite an opportunity for them, and I'm sure they're very excited about it. They desire to hear more of, of what does this man have to say about the kingdom of God. A topic that's very much on their hearts and minds. So they've invited him to stay in their home for dinner. But that means that somebody's going to have to make preparations, doesn't it? You can't call out for pizza in that day. There's no home deliveries of food in that day. Preparation of a meal is a very long and laborious process in that day. And so there's a, quite a bit of work to do, a lot of preparations to be made. And this man is an honored guest. I mean, this is the Messiah of Israel. They've come, I'm quite confident, they've come by this time to believe that this is the king of Israel. So when you invite the king home for dinner, you get out the best stuff, right? You get out your, your, your finest and you prepare a feast to serve the king. But who's going to cook it? See, that's the question. Who's going to cook the feast? Notice verse 39. Martha, she had a sister called Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet, says verse 39. Mary has settled in at the feet of Messiah, at the feet of Jesus. Now, to to sit at the feet of someone when they teach in that culture, was to assume the position of a, of a zealous disciple. You remember Paul talks about learning at the feet of Gamaliel. That was not just the place of a disciple. That was the place of a, of a zealous and fervent disciple. And so Mary assumes this position seated right at his feet so she can be as close to him as she can get and she can hear everything he says. It's also interesting because culturally, this would have been a taboo. 
This was a, a place for men, not a place for women to sit at the feet of a rabbi. But she, she cares nothing about cultural taboo. She is, she's absolutely enamored with this prophet. And so she pulls up as close as she can get. She wants to hear everything he has to say. Every question, every word that drops from his mouth, she wants to hear it. But Martha, verse 40, take a look. Contrast. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. Martha is distracted. Mary is enamored. Now, it's not that Martha doesn't want to hear what he has to say. She does. She would like to be there, too. But somebody has to put a meal on the table. And after all, it's her home. She's the matron of the house. She has responsibilities. She has pressure. She has obligations that are crowding out her best desires. She's being dragged away, as it were, by the necessities of life. She's become distracted. She's become busy. She's become overburdened. The implication here that Luke gives us is very much that she wants to be where her sister is, but she just feels like she can't be there. It's too much to do. I mean, it's bread to bake. There's, there's meat to prepare. There's vegetables and other things. Well, I don't know about the vegetables, but there's... You know, we need to wash the dishes. We need to set the table. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you men know what I'm talking about. Or you've heard it said once. <laughs> There's a lot to do to serve dinner to the king. She's being prevented by the daily pressure of, of a cultural expectation of hospitality. She's, her de- best desires are being crowded out. What a contrast. Well, next we have a complaint. We have a complaint. I think you have to get the picture here of of Martha kind of walking back and forth. Maybe she's, and I'm not sure how their home was arranged, obviously. So maybe just picture, work with me a little on this. Maybe she's, she's in the kitchen and she's got, you know, six or seven pots on the stove, whatever kind of stove they had going there. And She's trying to keep the things, you know, you got to bring a meal to the table all at the same time, right? All the food has to be served hot. It has to arrive in the right time. And things don't cook at the same times and at the same temperatures. And so there's a lot to it to get it there. So she's in there and she's working away. And, and maybe she can hear a little bit of what's going on, but it's, it's more of a dull buzz. So every now and again, she breaks away and, and she comes and stands in the doorway of the room and, and she's listening for a while until she smells something and she has to hustle back there and take care of whatever it is. Maybe, maybe to set the table, she's walking back and forth by the opening to the room where they are talking and she's carrying the plates and thinking to herself, it sure would be nice if somebody would help me put the plates on the table. But they're all with rapt attention listening to Jesus. And so back and forth she goes. She's just trying to get it all together, all right. Meanwhile, she's beginning to burn. Starts out as a slow simmer. Then the heat 
begins to turn up. Or, or maybe it's a pressure cooker and it just starts to bubble up that way. We're not sure. But the text clearly indicates that she's becoming increasingly frustrated. Increasingly frustrated. The frustration begins to lead to anger. She goes from just being frustrated with having to do so much to, to make this right to beginning to get ticked off, angry inside. Finally, she can't stand it anymore. In verse 40, she, she marches right into the room. She stands right in front of the Lord Jesus Christ and she chews him out. See, in the middle of the verse, 40. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Awkward. (laughs) Don't you think? Got all these guests. That's the kind of conversation you're supposed to go to another room and have. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's obvious that Mary's not going to help her. I mean, Mary can't see or hear anything. She's oblivious to anything but the words that are dropping from the lips of Messiah. And it's equally obvious that, that Jesus doesn't seem to care that she's doing all the work. I mean, he's watched her go back and forth. He... he Understand, she'd like to be there too. I mean, she's not the slave, right? She's the, she's the matron of the home. She would like to be there too, but it doesn't seem to bother him. He doesn't seem to care. He doesn't say to Mary, okay, that's enough for you. Why don't you get up and, and go help out your sister and let her come in here a while? He doesn't say that. I mean, he could rectify the whole situation if he, if he just turned to Mary and said, okay, that's enough. Your sister needs some help. Go help her. I mean, that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Don't you think? That sounds like the reasonable thing to do. Like a God who, who's fair and loving. Isn't that what you, you would think he would do? But he doesn't. I mean, this is shocking. This should, when we read, it should shock us. It's designed to shock us. This is a breaking of all social norms. This is turning the situation on his head. You're supposed to feel for Mary. Poor, or not Mary, rather Martha. Poor, overworked Martha. Lord, don't you care? Tell her to help me. Notice Jesus' response. In his very typically gentle way, he reprimands her. Verse 41. The Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, chill out. Calm down. 
Dial it back a few notches. You're worried and bothered about so many things. She's agitated. She's anxious. She's all wound up inside to the place where she comes in and and chews out the king. Martha, Martha, just calm down. Is so worried and, and bothered about so many things. But only a few things are necessary. Really only one. Text there is a little bit uncertain between some of the manuscripts. And so your translation may handle it a little bit differently. But the idea gets across. You're so worried and bothered about so many things. But, but really only one thing is necessary. It's the idea. Only one thing is necessary. Now, again, we're not sure here whether he's talking about the number of courses of the meal. That's certainly an exegetical possibility. He may be saying, Martha, Martha, chill out. You're you're worried and you're bothered about this 10-course meal. Only one thing's necessary. Just put some soup on the table. One pot, one dish. Just a, a simple meal. That's all we need. We don't, we don't need the, the ten-course spread. That, that's possible that he's saying that. I'm inclined that way personally. Only one thing's necessary. But then he bridges from that. If it's true that he's talking about the physical reality of the meal itself... He bridges from that to the spiritual food, which is the real point. He says, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, Martha, it's not bad what you want to do. You you want to honor me. You want to honor me with with a big spread. I am the king. That's a good thing. That's a, that's a noble desire. Elaborate feast. It, it shows you love me. It shows you you care about me. It's a good thing. But it's not the best thing. It's not the best thing. See, what's happened is you've allowed this, this noble desire, this good thing that you want to do, to interfere with what is the most important thing. You've allowed the pressures to overwhelm you. You've allowed it to turn you upside down and to twist you into knots inside. To the place where you've missed the whole point. You've missed it. The big idea, the, the main thing, Martha, is to listen to me. That's what Mary's doing. She has chosen the good part. She's made the best choice. 
of the options that were available. She has chosen well. She has chosen the best. She has chosen to sit at the feet of Messiah and listen to what he has to say. This will never be taken away from her. Martha, you you should have been content to serve me a simple meal and keep the main thing the main thing. Loving God, my friends, that's what it's all about. It is about loving God and listening to His Word. That is what is essential in life. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, Moses writes, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8.3. This is what is essential. This is what is critical. This is the one thing that you cannot give up for any other good thing, for any other worthy cause, any other noble purpose. You must not give this up. This is the one thing. This is the main thing. What Martha's doing was good. What Mary's doing is better. So let's apply it. Let's vault it forward 2,000 years and apply it. Young mothers. Let's start there. Let's apply it to young mothers. You have lots of responsibilities. You have many, many responsibilities. Lots of little children that are dependent upon you and and consuming your time and your energy. This is a good thing. It's, it's, It's the correct thing to do to be a mother and to care for the needs of your children. To care for their spiritual needs. But if it overwhelms the care for your own soul, then you have missed the good thing. You have allowed the responsibilities of motherhood to snuff out your time with the Lord. Let me just make it super practical, young moms. If being a mother means that you cannot spend time with the Lord in His Word every single day, then you've you've missed the greater good. You've missed it. And you need to make changes to your life so that you can feed your own soul. They tell about Susanna Wesley. She had 19 children. They didn't all live. I I believe nine of them died. She had 19 children. They say that in order to get some peace and quiet and to pray, she would pull her apron over her head. And she would kind of isolate herself off for a little while to pray. Try it. I don't, you know. (laughs) It's part of your child training. To teach your children that mommy has a time with the Lord. May mean you have to get up a little earlier. I don't know. But but you can't allow the good thing to snuff it out. Maybe your work schedule is interfering with the feeding of your own soul. That's a good thing to work. It's commendable to provide for your family. God actually commands such things. But if our work schedule prevents time in the Scriptures, time with God's people, then our priorities are messed up. 
We need to do something about that. Work, good as it is, can't snuff out the greater. Maybe it's your family commitments. You know, we need family time, right? We hear about that a lot in our culture. We have to have family time. So we all sit home and watch TV. That's family time. Maybe we go out and participate in recreational activities. You know, off to the, off to the river or wherever it is. We have family time. Or maybe, maybe your children are involved in all kinds of athletics and other activities, extracurricular activities. And so you're running here, you're running there. Maybe you just have to visit uh, lots of siblings and parents and whatever it is. And so you're busy, busy, busy life doing all of these things which in and of themselves are good and every one of them you could justify. But cumulatively, what they do is they, they slowly squeeze your spiritual life. The life of your soul begins to become shriveled. You've got to keep the main thing the main thing. Maybe it's your ministry involvement. Maybe you're so busy preparing sermons that you never minister to your own soul. Do you know that's a danger? A danger to be in the Word of God all the time and fail to minister to your own soul. That's how seminary can become cemetery. It's a danger. Even doing God's work. Maybe, maybe you're the kind of person who is always helping other people. You're just actively helping others all the time. You're always busy. Maybe you're on a lot of committees. Whatever it is, whatever the ministry involvements and commitments that you have, they become so large that what happens is in the secret place, it begins to erode care and nourishment of your own soul, the the listening to Jesus gets smaller and smaller in your life. You go a day without hearing from Him. Then a day becomes two. Then it becomes three. Then it's a week. Then it's two weeks. Then it's a month. It's so insidious, so dangerous. Stress and fatigue can do the same thing. Life is so busy. Here we live in Southern California, right? If this is not the busiest place on earth, it's got to be close to it. We get tired. We're we're stressed out. Stress makes us want to sleep. Just make it all go away. I just, you know, I can't get out of bed anymore in the morning. So I, I end up sleeping in. And then I need to jump up out of bed and I need to run off to school or off to work or get my day started or whatever it is. And, and there's no time for, to be with the Lord. Then I go about my day and I dash off a few quick prayers. And then I get home at night and I've got responsibilities and I need to do this and I need to do that. And, and I'm not quite tired yet because I slept in on the other end. And so I stay up a little bit later and then I go to bed. And I'll read my Bible when I go to bed. I'll lay on my bed. And I'll hold it up over my head and I'll read it. Wrong. Right? You'll sleep under your Bible is what you'll do. And then the next morning comes around and it happens. It gradually happens. No 
time spent with the Lord. No quality time with Christ. Mary responded to Jesus here, back verse 39. Out of a desire to hear his word. Not out of a duty. We're not advocating duty here. This is not a set of do's and don'ts. I mean, when my kids were young, it was. No Bible, no breakfast. That's the way it was. You don't read a Bible, you don't eat. Okay? Well, you can do that with little children because they need to learn things. But this is, not, this is not a set of rules. This is not like, okay, I, I put it on my daytime or, you know, 15 minutes with the Lord. Check next, you know, spiritual life is not like that. Mary is here because she wants to be here. She's, she's delighted in the Lord. She, it's out of her devotion. That's the way it, that's the way it is with us. We, we delight in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We, we come to Him out of devotion for Him, not out of duty. And, and the place where we meet Him, the place where He speaks to us, the place where we hear from Him is in His Word. It goes back to the Scriptures. You want to sit at the feet of Jesus... You sit at the feet of Jesus as you as you spend time, quality time with him in his word. Maybe I can illustrate it, the whole desire and delight thing for you this way. A few years ago, when when our son joined the Marine Corps, he left for boot camp that summer. He would write letters home. We were dying to hear from him. And so every single day, my wife would would go out. As soon as they heard the mailman drop something in the mailbox, she would rush out to see if we had a letter from him. And if we got a letter, she'd, she'd tear it open. And he was very ingenious the way he wrote, even when he wasn't supposed to be. Wrote a lot of letters. And she would read it. She would read it through really fast. Then she'd call me at the office. And she'd read it to me. She'd read it to me over the phone. And then when I got home, I'd get the letter. And I would sit down and I would read it more thoroughly, more closely, more carefully. And I'd read it all the way through again. And then we would talk about what we had read in the letter. What's going on in his life, what he's thinking, what are his hardships that he's that he's having? How can we pray for him? For all, I don't even remember how many weeks it was. He was gone 15 weeks or something like that. So through all of that time, we, we could not wait to get a letter from him. Because we love him. See, that's the way the scriptures, that's the way the scripture should grip our soul. Not ho-hum, but that we can't wait to open it up and to read it and to, and to hear from our God. What is Jesus saying to me today? What does he want me to know? How, how is he going to encourage my heart? Prepare me to face the day. It's all right here. Just tear it open and read it. It's by his grace that we keep the main thing the main thing. It's, it's not by law, it's by grace. See, he just inflames our heart to love Christ through his word.
We hear His Word in the Scriptures. Beloved, as we hear His Word, it, it prepares us to take communion together too. I'm going to turn you back just a few chapters to chapter 5, Luke's Gospel. What was it that Mary wanted to hear? Well, of course, we can't know for sure. But Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. We'll use this to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper together. Verse 27 of Luke chapter 5. And, and after that, he, that is Jesus, went out. And he noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And, and there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax gatherers and the sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. We're here this morning because we're sinners. And we know we are. If we thought everything was fine, we would be somewhere else. This is a hospital, as it were, for sinners. This is a place for people that are all messed up to come. People who recognize the reality that their, their life is bent and it's twisted. And that they regularly and consistently sin against a God that they love. That's who we are. And so we come to gather together here because we recognize our need for a Savior. We can't do it on our own. If someone won't step into the gap for us, if, if someone won't extend their hand and, and grab God's hand in our hand and be that bridge for us, we have no hope. Christ says He, he came to call you and, and He came to call me. Because that's who we are. We're, we're sick. We're sinners. So when we take communion together, we're, we're just reminded Every single time we're reminded again of that awesome price that Jesus Christ paid to bridge the gap between us and God. He gave Himself as a substitute for you and for me. That on Him the wrath of God the accumulated wrath of God for all of our sin, all of our wickedness, all of our guilt, past, present, and future, were poured out that day. Christ drank the cup of the wrath of God to the very dregs. He drained it dry. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit and he said, It is finished. They laid him in a tomb. And three days later, death could not hold him. 
They tore the tomb open that we might look in to see that He is not there. He has risen from the dead. That He has life evermore. And those who will by faith embrace Him as their substitute will have within their own soul the very life of God. He is the first fruit of resurrection. My friends, when we, when we come to celebrate together, we're proclaiming these amazing truths. As we take the elements, let it minister to your soul. Let's pray.